This is the Blockchain Futures Lab podcast, produced by Institute for the Future. I'm Mark Fraunfelder, a research director at Institute for the Future. In December 2013, a group of protesters in Oakland, California, attacked a private Google shuttle bus that was taking Google employees from their Bay Area homes to their offices at Google headquarters in Mountain View, California, 40 miles south. The protesters smashed one of the bus's windows and blocked the bus from moving forward, holding up a banner that read, Fuck off, Google. The protesters also handed out flyers to the frightened Google employees that read in part, While you guys live fat as hogs with your free 24-7 buffets, everyone else is scraping the bottom of their wallets, barely existing in this expensive world that you and your chums helped create. The protesters were upset that their neighborhood was being gentrified by the affluent tech workers, forcing longtime residents to leave their homes and apartments because rents were becoming unaffordable. Author Douglas Rushkoff's latest book draws its title from this incident, which is one of many turf clashes between Silicon Valley commuters and working-class residents throughout the San Francisco Bay Area in the last few years. In Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, Rushkoff examines the reasons why the digital economy, which was touted as a great democratizer, has left so many people behind, including even those within the tech industry. It's not that digital technology failed us, says Rushkoff. Instead, the problem is that technology has been deployed in such a way that a precious few people at the top of the food chain profit immensely, leaving the other 99% scraping at the bottom of their wallets. In fact, argues Rushkoff, digital technology can actually be part of the solution to equalize the kind of disparity that makes people mad enough to throw rocks at buses. In his book, Rushkoff lays out a vision for a sustainable prosperity system he calls digital distributism, which makes use of the kind of peer-to-peer mechanisms that power Uber and Airbnb in a way that optimizes the economy for the velocity of transactions between people rather than the accumulation of capital from people. The role of blockchain technology to enable peer-to-peer transactional networks figures heavily in the brave new digital distributism world, says Rushkoff, because it allows individuals and small groups to route around the rent-seeking gatekeepers who corrupted the ecosystem in the first place. I interviewed Douglas by phone in March of 2016. Hi, Doug. Tell me, why are people throwing rocks at the Google bus? The folks at Google are making all these great tools to use, and it doesn't cost anything. Well... The people throwing rocks at the Google bus may not have as uh, coherent or rigorous uh, an approach to the Google problem as the original protesters, you know, but the, the, the original protesters, the ones who just sort of laid their bodies in front of the Google buses and uh, tried to make people aware of, of the problem that, that Google poses are San Francisco residents who are distressed that their rents are going up, that local businesses can't afford to work in San Francisco anymore, and that Google's employees really just use San Francisco as a bedroom community and then commute off in these private buses that use public bus stops off to the Google campus where they make a ton of money. So it... it it feels to the – and it's a reality to the local residents that uh, the promise of the digital economy and companies like Google, which was to 
make us all wealthier to help give us all a leg up has not been realized. And instead, the the really the disparity of income between the wealthy and the poor has gotten exacerbated by these companies. And the, the Google bus really just epitomized the way that these seemingly alien companies come and land on San Francisco and change the, the environment and the economy uh, radically, but don't distribute wealth to the people who are actually there. So are you saying that no one benefits from this kind of growth? Well, not no one. I mean, there's someone who does. You know, the the one billionaire out of a million startups, he does well. You know, but the the chances of doing well in this scheme are probably less than uh, when you take your welfare check and go to the bodega and buy a lottery ticket. So, yeah, I mean, the 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 point I was trying to raise is that you know. Yeah, we could be angry at the people on the bus, but the people on the bus aren't necessarily the problem. You know, they they are kids who know computer science or who know some code and who are trying to hang on to a job at Google for two or three years until they burn out. You know, so they're they're just trying to get by as well. You know, even if they're making a hundred thousand dollars now, they know that five years from now they they may not be able to, or their skills will no longer be uh, uh, the uh, they won't know the language that's whatever language is being used. So you know, I, I really looked through the chain of of decision making. You can even look all the way to the CEO of Google, you know, which is now, I guess, Alphabet, really a holding company instead of Google. And the CEO is obligated to shareholders who actually own the company. And the shareholders are, you know, people like you and me who have a retirement plan somewhere with a S&P 500 fund in it, of which Google is some part. You know, so, you know, where do you actually, uh, where do you point the blame in this is not really at any of the individual humans involved, or maybe it's equally at all of them, but at an operating system uh, that is really incompatible with the world in which we're living. So in your book, you say that corporations are programs. What do you mean by that? You know, I mean it in a couple of ways. You know, most uh, most obviously, uh, the people who are are doing startups, the developers who are coming up with these new ideas, you know, they're really happy to to disrupt one industry or another. Like, oh, I'm going to create an app that disrupts publishing. I'm going to create an app that disrupts taxis. I'm going to create an app that disrupts journalism. But then what do they do with this great disruptive app? app is they run to the equivalent of their daddy at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, and they end up participating in the the most conservative status quo industry of all, the really the biggest and baddest industry of all of them, which is Wall Street. You know, so they surrender their idea. So when when you see the the founders of Twitter on the you know on the floor of the stock exchange getting to ring the opening bell, and you see all the traders and billionaires applauding them, that's not because they've done something disruptive, right? It's because if anything, what they've done is affirmed the centrality of venture capital to the whole system. You know, it's the opposite of disruption at that point. And that's really because they're not recognizing that this operating system of corporate capitalism is itself arbitrary. It was put in place. And that's, you know, in the book, I go back to, you know, when was it invented and what was it invented for? And, you know, you could... 
you know, to make a long story short, it was really invented in around 11 or 1200 uh, at the at the end of the medieval marketplace. And it was invented really to squash the competition that the middle class and all of this peer-to-peer trading was having on the aristocracy who really hadn't worked in, in hundreds of years. So they they invented this operating system, which is is central currency and the chartered monopoly, which is really just the corporation. They invented that in order to prevent small businesses and independent craftspeople from competing in an effective way. And the only way to really have a business is to get capital. I mean, we call it capitalism. And capitalism, it's not that capitalism is so evil, but when you take that system and then you put it on a on a digital platform, now we have an operating system sitting on another operating system. What ends up happening is it amplifies the role of capital in the equation. You know, there used to be what we, we called the factors of production. And there were always three factors of production. There's land, there's labor, and there's capital. But in the scene that we're in, when you have venture capitalists coming in and pretty much telling developers what to do with their company, land and labor, they don't really mean as much. So we see labor really exploited. We see the land really mistreated and we see capital growing. You know, and that's actually become more of a problem than it is a solution. I want to get to the heart of your book and talk about your proposal for an alternative to digital industrialism. It's something you call digital distributism. It's a really attractive scenario. It is. I mean, it, 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 and I don't even mean it in a utopian way. I just mean it really, there's something we can do other than, in such, than industrialism on digital steroids, which is what we're doing now. You know, Amazon is just Walmart on, on digital drugs, right? Uber is, is, is just a digital version of the same old kind of one size fits all, you know, industrial capitalism and to squash labor and destroy neighborhoods and all that. So what could we do instead? And what I'm arguing is that, you know, is sort of the opposite of what the, the MIT economists argue. They say we're moving into a second machine age, which is a really reactionary approach. It's saying everything stays the same, except now the machines are going to be digital. And if that's the case, then we're really going to just drive ourselves off a cliff. We can't just accelerate those processes. So what what I'm looking at is rather than this being a kind of industrial revolution, what if this is more of a renaissance, which is really just the rebirth of old ideas in a new context? You know, when you look at a, a when you look at it through the lens of a media theorist like McLuhan or a, a technology theorist like Mumford, what you would see is that when you get a new technology or a new medium, what happens is you retrieve the values that were really buried the last time out. You know, so if the if the internet is kind of the the biggest medium since the printing press, which a lot of us would argue it is, then you got to go back to the printing press and say, well, when the printing press came out, what values were retrieved and what values were repressed? You know, and what was repressed the last time out with the invention of the printing press and industrialism and corporatism and central currency were the peer-to-peer values of the bazaar, the medieval marketplace, the kind of the hands-on, crafty, artisanal, guild-driven economy that was so threatening to the aristocracy that they had to stamp it out. But if it gets retrieved, then what does that look like? You know, and the 
people who really described it best, it turns out, were and these were people that that McLuhan himself really referred to a lot, were the Catholic priests of the of the really of the 1800s and the 1900s. You know, they invented a concept that they called distributism. And the idea of distributism is not, you know, as Bernie Sanders might say, it's not that you redistribute the spoils of capitalism after the fact. It's not some kind of socialist redistribution of wealth. What it is is a pre-distribution of the means of production. So what they were arguing was that workers should own the tools that they need to create value. So in those days, it could look like, you know, the workers own their shovels and their pickaxes, you know, the actual tools, the baker owns his oven. You know, what does that look like today? Well, today it would really, because none of us, I mean, we can all own our computers, but we can't really own the networks on which we do all this, but we can distribute ownership of these networks. So we could have, you know, what would be called platform cooperatives, which would just be like a, a version of Uber where the drivers own half the company, a third of the company, where you would distribute, you know, the actual shares of the company to the people who are working in the company or to the places where that company is actually uh, is operating. So what I see is the the brighter possibilities of a digital economy would be to retrieve those peer-to-peer mechanisms, to look at how do we optimize the economy for the velocity of transactions between people rather than the accumulation of capital from people. You know, the accumulation of capital, that's the industrial game. You know, the S&P, you just make your corporation grow bigger. But I think that's reached a point of diminishing, not just diminishing returns, but destructive returns. Corporations have gotten too big for their own good. That's the big problem if you talk to most CEOs today is their corporations have a ton of money, but they don't know how to deploy that capital. They don't know how to make money with money. Even Google has become a holding company because it's in the financial realm more than it is the technological realm. It needs to buy other little companies that still have the ability to innovate. But in a in digital distributism, what you end up in is an economy that's really looking at how do I, as a company, make other people rich? It's a bit like, not that Google does it well, but uh, it's a bit more like when YouTube uh, lets people who upload videos, they retain some of the money that they get, that, that Google gets from advertising on top of your video. You know, it's, it's looking at that as the starting point. To understand that in a digital economy, in a networked economy, a networked society, you can't make your customers poor. You can't just extract from that or you end up with no customers. That's the problem that Walmart has. You know, Walmart has made so many towns bankrupt through the way that they operate that many Walmarts are going out of business because they no longer have customers who are wealthy enough to even shop at a Walmart. No, that's the problem. Instead, what a digital business would look to do is how do I create a company? How do I create a, a model that not to, not to the, 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 not at my expense, but how does my very business model make the people who interact with me wealthier? You know, and that's when you start to see, oh, there's this other economic reality that's so much more consonant with the way digital networks actually function. So how do local currencies fit into this vision? We are seeing a rise of local currencies in 
places, you know, beyond Ithaca and the other, you know, cool coastal progressive communities that do these things for fun. You know, you see local currencies at use in Detroit and Lansing and a lot of bankrupted places, you know, in Greece, where the euro is too expensive, they create online favor banks, where people can just do things for one another. Again, you know, people say, oh, this is communism or something. It's not communism. It's, it's economics. All you need for a working economy are people with needs and people with skills. They just need a way to transact, you know, and barter is, is a bit too primitive, you know, because you might not want to do exactly the thing that that the person you want something from wants, but local currencies and even uh, some of these blockchain negotiated currencies can function as as a, as a way to uh, establish trust in these communities. If they're not really local, you can you can begin trading in a peer to peer fashion that way. Um, I see great hope in uh, in people make fun of it, but in artisanal beers and artisanal yams and community supported agriculture you know these activities you know it's not just hipster insanity that this is people actually making things that's to me what digital means digital refers to the fingers so when people actually get involved in making something and selling it themselves to somebody else uh, that's a real possibility uh, distributism is apparent in crowdfunding, particularly local crowdfunding, where you can see a town uh, invest in the expansion of a restaurant. You know, that happened in in my town where people bought in advance. They paid $100 to get $120 worth of food at the expanded restaurant. So we ended up getting a 20% return on our money, which is better than we could do on the market, certainly in that amount of time. And the restaurant gets money cheaper than it can get from the bank because it only it pays it back in food and services. So, you know, it was a way of capitalizing a business locally. We got great returns and we got to see the fruit of our investment. It made our downtown better. The other thing I've seen a lot of is bounded investing, which is investing less in completely foreign things and more in things that actually benefit you. I, you know, got the idea from looking at what the steel workers were doing, the the U.S. Steel Workers Retirement Fund. They used to invest all in the stock market and they didn't really do so well. They were looking for alternative investments and they thought, well, why don't we just invest in projects that hire steel workers? Because even if those projects fail, at least we'll have jobs. <laughs> so, But of course the projects did fine. So then they end up getting the same dollar twice. And that's really the basic principle here. Instead of investing something once and seeing it get locked away in share price, why don't you invest it in a way that you get to see that same dollar once, twice, three, four, five times that same dollar? That's the equivalent of earning $5 if you get to see that same dollar circulating through your own toll booth five times. That's that's all you really need. So it's it's an opposite way of looking at money. It's not about getting the chips off the board. It's about getting as many chips onto the playing field as possible. And and it's basic economics is the thing, you know, that most economists and business people, they don't recognize this because they've accepted the program of corporate capitalism the way it was delivered to them. They've accepted the landscape. You know, it's as if they've opened the Wall Street Journal today and said, oh, this is a pre-existing condition of nature. And it's not. You know, they're looking at this is the story 
you're coming in on a story that's already in motion. You know, there's no need. I always love when companies, especially finance companies, talk about, oh, let's gamify this. You know, dude, it's already gamified, you know? <laughs> it's already all the stocks and bonds and instruments. And then derivatives of derivatives of derivatives, that's games on top of games on top of games. And where we've gotten is to this very obvious point where the game is no longer serving humanity. So what we have to do, and this is why, you know, I love, I love the, the, the prime message of Boing Boing is we have to serve team human, that this is about the people, the soft and squishy little pink flesh, you know, and brown flesh humans that are, are living in and amongst these these operating systems that once it's humans serving the operating system instead of the operating system serving the humans that's when we have to reconfigure the system and that's really what we're in the process of doing only it's really hard to do that from central command you know if 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 the president asked me what they should do it would be something really as simple as well start taxing capital gains more than you tax regular earnings. So right now, our taxation system is designed to discourage people from earning money with a job or earning money by creating value and to encourage people to make money simply by having capital. And that's the problem. That's We've got to reverse that on a policy level. But until we do, it's a matter of scaling down. You know, when you create a business, think about not how is this business going to scale up, but how can it scale down? How can it stay this size? How can I avoid taking venture capital? How can I avoid having those guys with money become the boss because they're going to make me take my great idea for an app, my great idea for a website, and they're going to make me pivot to something very, very different because the object of the game for them is not to create a sustainable company, right? The object of the game for them is to create something you can sell. Doug, in your book, you talk about blockchain technology. How can blockchain technology help people have more of an ownership stake in what they do for a living? Yeah, I mean the the beauty of a blockchain um, is really it's it, it's so much more profound than Bitcoin itself. You know the underlying technology, which is really you know, and I, I studied it and studied it because I really wanted to understand what it was and kind of all it really is is you remember PGP, you know, pretty good privacy and the way you have have. Uh, 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 the way you can verify where email is coming from with a with a token, it sort of works like that. Only it kind of stacks them up. So you know it, but it's really just like PGP authentication of yes, we really did this, and then the world witnessing it uh, to make this ledger. But once you have that ability, you can you can authenticate almost anything. So you know the drivers of of an alternative Uber could authenticate how much they've driven their cars, you know, in order to divvy out how much of the, uh, how much of the shares should they own. Um, and there are now corporations that are basing themselves on the blockchain principle because you can pretty much write in whatever rules you want into the blockchain and then establish who's done what. So if you're going to create a big collective project or something, the, the, the trick with the blockchain, though, is that is to remember that the blockchain does not create trust between people, right? The blockchain substitutes for trust 
between people. You know, so if I were working on a collaborative enterprise with 12 of my friends, I would hope that we wouldn't need to use the blockchain <laughs> to verify what we've all done. I mean, can you imagine if the writers and people on 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 uh, uh, Boing Boing, if it's like, well, how much do you get of this? How much do I get of it? Well, we're going to authenticate this on the blockchain to make sure that we're all being honest here. Um, that would be kind of sad. So uh, I do think it's a great way for, you know, giant community projects. You know, if we were going to do some kind of, uh, for profit, uh, or even just, uh, uh, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a for profit, but a, a, a company where we're going to make money even as wages, but that's like on the scale of Wikipedia, that's going to be some big project, or we're going to make, I've got this great idea for software and I've got a hundred partners from a hundred countries. Then, yeah, we could use a blockchain to create our contractual agreement and to verify the work that everybody's done. And then it's this beautiful thing, you know, for like the Mondragon uh, cooperatives, I could see using a blockchain because they've got hundreds of thousands of employees who are uh, a part of this thing. But for most of us, um, you don't really, for most of us, we don't need these, these high tech solutions to our business problems. For most of us, it's really uh, a matter of, of just working on something that we want to stay alive. You know, the model that I'm really promoting is the model of the family business and family businesses and corporations hate to hear this, but family businesses do much better on pretty much every metric in the long term than shareholder owned businesses. You know, shareholder owned businesses always mock family businesses. Oh, it's small. It's nothing. It's stupid. But family businesses are optimized for the long term, but they're optimized to be sustainable. So the only time they don't do as well as, as, as shareholder owned corporations is during boom cycles, you know, during bubbles. But if it's not a bubble and Frankly, you don't want to grow during a bubble because then you're part of what pops. You know, family businesses do much, much better in downturns because they're geared for the long term. So as you approach whatever it is you're doing, you have to think, do I want to be like a traditional corporation, a shareholder-owned corporation, where the object of the game is to earn and extract enough money from this business so my grandchildren can inherit enough cash to live their lives? Or do I want to create a business that's healthy and sustainable enough that it can generate revenue and opportunities for my grandchildren who hopefully will want to join that business? You know, and the latter is the sort of approach that creates a business that that wants to befriend communities. It's your name on the thing. You don't want people to hate you the way they hate Uber because that's you. That's your kids. That's your family name. That's your legacy. And you have such a different relationship to it that you start to think of your neighborhood as a legacy and the planet as a legacy and your grandchildren as a legacy and your workers as a legacy. That that is who you are. And it's, it's so much more, uh, 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 integral, you know, than this fractious and abstracted business landscape that we're seeing die today. It's interesting when you hear VCs who are evaluating companies use the term lifestyle business in a disparaging way, like it's beneath their notice and they have no interest in it because it has no value to them. 
Right. And it's suspicious to them. You know, oh, this company is treating its employees too well. This is a problem. And that's because they have a purely extractive industrial age understanding of how business works. The way we save money is by cutting the bottom line. And what I'm doing is saying, no, no, no. The way you save money is by cutting out those shareholders. You don't need them. The less money you take, the less money you have to pay back. You know, these folks are making money by gaming the financial system. They, it has nothing to do with your company and the value you create and the thing that you do. But real business actually does better. These companies actually do better who pay their employees more. Costco does better than Walmart. Winco, the new uh, competitor to Walmart out west, which is a worker-owned cooperative, is beating Walmart at its own game. They're having you know better employees and better customers. It, Walmarts are going out of business where they have to compete with Winco, which pays its workers more, has better prices, has better relationships with their communities because they realized, oh, wait a minute, what if we actually make a better business. This idea that you're going to always be undercut by somebody who's treating their employees worse, who's buying worse products, who's outsourcing to China, that's a fiction. That's not actually real. You know, and the moment people realize that, you know, then they realize we actually have the competitive advantage. We local human beings have the home field advantage on planet Earth. We actually do. We have the home field advantage and the foreign, alien, abstracted corporations, they're, they're not natives, you know, and they will lose. To find out more about the urgent futures of the blockchain, visit iftf.org.